Everybody, this is Eric with Not My House, and we've got the co-host Zach in the house. Zach, what's going on, my friend? I'm just excited. I know some of our fans who are BYU fans are going to be really excited for this one, too. So I'm just really pumped to talk to our guest today. Absolutely. He's a BYU alum and was the 21st pick of the 1983 NBA draft. He played 12 seasons in the NBA and is a two-time NBA champion with those amazing Boston Celtic teams. Greg Kite, how are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing great, guys. Good to be on with you. Thank you. Looks like you grew up in Houston, if that's correct. What was your childhood like growing up in the Houston area? Uh, it was great. Uh, Houston was a great place to grow up. Uh, and uh, it was a great sports town. A lot of good friends. A lot of good memories still there. Um, my parents have passed away, so they're not there anymore. And my siblings all moved out of state like me. Um um, I live in Florida now. My wife's from Florida. We met back in college at BYU. But Houston was an awesome environment. Uh, with uh, I loved sports as a kid. I was playing all of them. I had a brother who was five years older, so I kind of tagged along with him and his, his older friends. We'd play you know, basketball, football, baseball in the neighborhood. And uh, we had good uh, youth uh, football leagues and, and uh, little league baseball. And, and the, the, they called them junior highs back then, middle schools now had good sports programs, so um, I, I loved all the sports, but I really got hooked on basketball at age 10, played on a YMCA team for my first uh, time, and then after that went on to the junior high and middle school ball, and uh, one of the things I think that kind of spurred it on, it was the Houston Rockets came to town, moved from San Diego in about, I don't know, it was about 19, I was probably about 8 to 10 years old, somewhere in there, and so having a pro team in town kind of... Uh, kind of motivated a lot of kids. Plus, University of Houston had really good teams. And I was a little kid, I got to go watch Elvin Hayes and some of his great teams play, exactly. play there. So that was kind of a motivator. And then as I, you know, got a little older in high school, I started playing with some of those college guys in the summer and pro guys. You know, but I didn't pick up games in, in the summer with, with nine NBA guys and me, you know, sometimes. So it was, uh, it was a great place to you know, grow up as a big, tall high school kid and have a lot of good competition that sounds like an amazing childhood i mean to be able to do all that i mean you know it's i think we miss out a lot nowadays where we don't have those opportunities where kids can just go grab kids from their neighborhood and play i know that's how i got introduced to sports and um were you an astros guy when you were when you were a kid oh yeah i was astros fan you could walk to the end of my street and see the old astrodome where where uh, NRG or whatever they call the stadium now where the Texans play. And I actually worked in the Dome as like a 14- and 15-year-old because it, it was a great way to see free baseball games and make 25 bucks selling 
popcorn or cokes and, oh, and nice. uh, got to work a few football games. Once school started, they they'd limit the uh, young guys. You could only work on the weekends and stuff. But uh, saw a lot of Astros games. Yeah, we used to go even then before that. You know, you'd go sit in the outfield for a buck or whatever it was. Back then, so my buddies and I, we like a lot of Astros games, and it was a heyday. That now the Tennessee Titans, the Houston Oilers, you know, had a great run with Earl Campbell and Kenny Stabler, Dan Pastorini, Bung Phillips back in the seventies. Uh, so that was pretty cool following them. Yeah, you well. read my mind. I was just about to ask you about Earl Campbell if you got to watch him play. What a what a guy that gets forgotten in terms of football running backs. But man, he was. Uh, oh yeah, he, Earl was one of my. <laughs> football heroes and he just, you know, he'd, he'd run through guys and over guys or some of those clips he'd watch. And uh cool thing happened when I was in high school, uh, Gifford Nielsen, who had been a, uh, actually played basketball and baseball, basketball and football his first couple of years at BYU. Then was a, their quarterback and got drafted by the Oilers. He was a backup quarterback for about seven years. So we got to know him and that's kind of when their school was recruiting me and got to go to a, one of these Monday night games. Gipper got some tickets when uh, uh, Earl Earl ran for about 250 yards. And just kept confused here. They're playing Raiders or something, but he was he was awesome. Yeah, and they had pretty pretty darn good teams, but they were always running into the Steelers back then with the, yep. their great teams. Yeah, and uh, you know I, I wanted to talk about your high school basketball experience. I mean, when you're growing up, I mean, you said you watched a lot of Elvin Hayes and you know the Rockets, but was there a guy in particular that you studied and tried to model your game after? Um, I don't know that I modeled my game after because I wasn't as good as any of these guys. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it uh, you know I remember uh, I was talking to a sports writer in Boston the other day about it. I had my brother and I shared a room. I had like Sports Illustrated had these posters you could buy for a long time. I had a poster Elvin Hayes, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Will Chamberlain and and uh, Nate Thurman. So I guess you could say I like the I like the big guys. I was a big guy, you know. I was six ten, six eleven. By the time I was in high school, and, and my brother was about six five, six six. So just kind of watching those guys a lot. I loved loved Kareem, and it was cool there when I my, you know got to my pro career, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, where I got to play kind of the full circle. Here I am as like a six year old or something, seven year old going with my dad and brother to go watch University of Houston games and. Elvin Hayes played, and then my rookie year, I got to. He was playing for the Rockets. It was last year, his last year in the NBA. I got to in the game for about five minutes, and I guard, guarded them, you know. And then got to play uh, a number of times against Kareem during his last, you know, five years or so in the NBA. So pretty cool doing that. And, and I'll tell you, another real strong influence on me was some of those pro guys I got to play with. One of them was Moses Malone, another one, Dwight Jones, who both those guys have passed away, but. Um, you know, Moses came to Houston uh, with the Rockets there in the uh, late 70s. He was one of those guys who would play, you know, pick up ball in the summer and with us and uh, just what a hard worker. and what a Good guy, too, really good guy. Yeah, and everything you hear about him was that he's the ultimate professional, too, taking young guys under his wing. Um, but, you know, when you're playing in high school, I mean, you talked about how you played a lot of pickup games with some NBA players, things like that. But what was the high school scene like? I mean, were you going up against any familiar names uh, during your playing days? Um, yeah, maybe not as, you know, maybe a little more well-known locally. The Probably the most well-known name would be uh, Clyde Drexler. Clyde and I were the two guys out of that era in Houston had the longest runs in the NBA. And, and I peaked in about 11th grade. Clyde 
Clyde never peaked, you know, Clyde, Clyde kept, in fact, you know, here I was, I was a high school, he was a year younger than me, he was a high school, I was a high school at McDonald's All-American, and Clyde was recruited, but he was more kind of a local, you know, area guy, but he's a great athlete, obviously, and he just kind of took off once he got there to Houston, and uh, there was another guy, you may not remember him, people have to look him up, but Rob Williams was one of the most talented uh, guards probably ever come out of Houston, he was that same year, he was a first-round pick. When the when the university he went up going to University of Houston and uh, but he got into some drug issues in high school even in in, uh, in college in fact he was Houston was in the Final Four when they played in New Orleans when uh, uh, Jordan stole the ball and they beat Georgetown so Houston won was one of those four teams and and Rob was the, the leading player there or their top scorer Elijah was there by uh, that time but it was his first year and he didn't play a lot uh, but they uh, Anyway, Rob got out in the NBA, and and the, and the drugs took its toll, and you know he was gone in about three years. But he, he I think he had like a forty-five point half or a forty-point half in the forum. He was in the top ten in NBA scores, and for the he played for the Nuggets. So those are two well-known guys. There were several other guys who played on those Houston Five Slam and Dammit teams, and some guys who played um, overseas for a long time uh, who played at some other colleges. So. It was a great bunch of athletes in that area, and I think all those guys are about my age. Um, and then some others came along a couple of years later, like Ricky Winslow, his son. Um, I forget the younger Winslow now, who was pleased playing in the NBA. Anyway, um, kind of a good year where I think we were all influenced by that. Um, you know, that, that, that University of Houston, Houston Rocket, NBA influence. It just influenced the generation of the kids who, you know, who played. And, uh, you know, we probably played as much as kids uh, as uh, youth does now. The youth sports is such a big uh, business now. You know, we we played as much, but he didn't have all the year-round AAU and travel balls that they do now. But uh, we were always looking for somebody. If you're a good player, you're always looking for somebody better to play with, whether it was at the the park, the city rec center, or the coaches, college or high school would open a gym, and you just did open gym. So. Uh, that was that was great. I mean, I could get there with a friend or hop on the bus or, or you know, one of my goals in high school, I, I just scrambled to doing some odds and ends, making enough money to buy an old car to, so I could get down to pickup games across town. So it was a cool environment to be in. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, all that worked with you playing against a good competition because it looks like you your high school team was pretty dominant, but then you also made the McDonald's game. I mean, what can you tell us about being selected? Because that was an amazing group. I think you had Isaiah Thomas, Dominique's, Ralph Sampson, Sam Bowie, James Worthy. I mean, yeah. did you know how special of a group that was going to be at the time? Uh, you know, in 19, that's 1979, and yeah, that was – Definitely one of the best high school classes, I think. You know, obviously all those guys don't go into the NBA draft at the same time, and things happen with injuries. But, yeah, I was probably like the fourth best, you know, rated probably about the fourth center in that besides Samson Bowie, who were, you know, light years better than me, and, and Steve Stepanovich. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Isaiah, Dominique Wilkins, Darren Day, uh, uh, James Worthy, uh, some some guys again who had issues, you know, between health and drugs. Quentin Daly was an awesome player. Um, some guys had a great college career, so it was a it was a fantastic, you know. And I, I the summer before, I'd gotten to go to some kind of couple of summer all star camps, so I'd 
been around a couple of those guys, but it did, you didn't travel the uh, national circuit like the, the high school kids do now and the top ones and really see them. So it was those all-star games. And unfortunately, uh, a crazy thing happened. I was going on my Texas. We couldn't go on our official recruiting visits until after the state basketball tournament was over. So that meant March when I went on official visits to, to UCLA, Duke, uh, BYU. I was going to go to Kentucky, but Kentucky they already signed Sam Bowie, and they're still they're still recruiting Ralph Sampson. And they said they still wanted me to come. I'm, why, why do you want me to come there when you already got those guys? But uh, anyway, on my recruiting visit to uh, BYU, we're playing pickup basketball with some guys on the team, including Danny Ames. And I, I grabbed a loose ball in the basket, went up to take it back up, and Danny swiped the ball and broke my knuckle on my right hand, and. Uh, so the next week was the uh, McDonald's High School All-American All Game, so I didn't even get to play in it. So uh, I was there, guys. But there were some other, there were some other games in the following week where I played. Like we played against Ralph and Sampson in a, another McDonald's game that was like the U.S. versus D.C., Virginia, Maryland All Stars. But yeah, it was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal class. I mean, you know, Dominique could, could <laughs> jump over everybody and dunk just like he. He couldn't approach, you know, so he was he was a stud and Isaiah and Yeah. I, I can't e I can't even imagine imagine that class in the social media era because there was no social media back then. So having a high school class like that, no. that would have blown up pretty quickly. No. You know, and, and, and Ralph and, and Sam Bowie without injuries were Hall of Famers. You yeah. know. Just that, you know, their injuries took took the toll on them early and and some other guys like Quentin Daly, who I played with later with the Clippers. Quentin probably would have been an NBA All-Star without his, you know, his drug problems that affected him during his career and things. So, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of talent in that class. And uh, yeah, let me tell you a little quick story that's just uh, that's uh, I think it's a fun one. So, University of Houston, I used to go over and play with those guys all the time. And uh, Guy Lewis, who was their longtime coach, you know, and. Uh, he had me and uh, Rob Williams, the guy I was talking about, to play for the Nuggets. And two other guys are great athletes, Ricky Thompson and Fred Reynolds, who ended up playing at, at UTEP, Texas El Paso. And, and um, both both were professionals for a long time over in Europe uh, at college. But uh, uh, Guy Lewis sat the four of us down, and he said, it's this pizza restaurant not far from campus. He said, hey, if you four guys come to U of H next year, we'll go to the Final Four. And so Rob Williams is the only guy who ended up going there. And they did go to the final four for about two, 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 I think three of the next four years or something. And I always joke, yeah, what guy left, what coach Lewis left off was that we'll go to the final four. Cause a guy named Hakeem Olajuwon will show up on my doorstep. Which That's a phenomenal story. If you've never heard that story about how Hakeem showed up and, and what he, you know, how he developed. And, and I mean, he came over, he's about 190 pounds and, 6'10", but, you know, very agile and athletic. But, but what a what a story behind Akeem and the work he put in. Yeah. Well, soccer, uh, soccer player, right? He was like a big soccer player before he played basketball, right? Yeah, like a lot of places around the world, soccer's number one, and, and basketball and facilities and things like that weren't as developed around the world and certainly in Nigeria. But he, he played basketball maybe for a year or two, and there was a guy named Christopher Pond, who was the uh, an American who was the coach of the Nigerian junior national team. So, you know, they sent him over. I mean, he knew coaches back in the U.S., so they sent him over to look at some schools. 
And uh, I think he had a ticket for like five places. And one of the first ones he went to was St. John's and it was cold. And so the story was he, uh, Hakeem asked, uh, asked a Nigerian skycap at the airport in, in, in New York and said, hey, which one of these cities is warm? And he said, Houston. So he took the next ticket and went to Houston. And, and, and they didn't even pick him up at the airport. They just had a cab take him from the airport to campus. And, you know, they knew knew about it, but they had no idea what sort of potential they had until he got there. But that's uh, that's kind of how he showed up on their doorstep and, uh, and uh, took off from there. But, you know, the guy like Moses Malone, he really worked a lot with Moses and took him under his wing and, you know, and then uh, just a good environment for him. Yeah. Build and build. Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's pretty tough to pass up on Houston when you when you grow up there. So, I mean, what's, what was it that sold you on BYU exactly? Uh, number one party school in the country. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're always ranked number one stone cold sober school in the country because of uh, some notes called the honor code. They don't have any uh, drugs and alcohol, primarily sex, sex, things like that. So pretty – but I grew up uh, in the uh, – uh, Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, often to refer to as a Mormon faith. My um, my mother had actually gone to school there, uh, didn't graduate from there, but uh, uh, went there and some of her sisters, and she had, uh, as a young girl, they'd moved from uh, Alberta, Canada, down to Salt Lake City area where mom was from. So I'd been out there before with relatives, my brother that I mentioned, and my two older sisters also had gone there. So just kind of family ties, I was kind of, you know, I would have, if I was just going to school, I probably would have gone there anyway. But all these other places that were recruiting me were great schools, good good environments, great basketball programs. So it was really a combination of things. I mean, the basketball program was coming back there at BYU. had a little down period. But uh, Danny Ainge was there two years ahead of me. Fred Roberts, who played in the NBA, a couple of guys, Devin Durant, uh, Steve Trumbo, who were high school All-Americans were there a year ahead of me, and uh, those guys both had long pro careers, too. So our, our coach, uh, Frank Arnold, had been an assistant coach with John Wooden at UCLA during the Bill Walton years, and um, so he had been hired in, at, at uh, BYU about two years before, about, I think it was Ainge's freshman year, 77. So the program was really coming back, so basketball was at, and it's always been a great basketball state. In fact, when I was in school, the four D1 schools, there's about 61 schools there now, but the four D1 schools were all ranked in the top 25, Utah, Utah State, BYU, and Weber. And um, we had just a great program, but it was a good, great fit for me um, academically, socially, spiritually. So all of those things, uh, you know, just kind of thought about it, prayed about it, uh, talked to my parents a little bit, but the best thing out of it, the whole thing, I, you know, it worked out well for me basketball-wise, got a great degree, et cetera, was my wife, Jenny, who's from Orlando. She played on the women's basketball team. So I got there and I started getting recruited again by her and a couple of friends of her. Were. <laughs> so anyway, we, we, we met my freshman year. And so we were married by the time I was out of school and, and, and in, the, in the NBA. And uh, so I'm glad I went there. That's awesome. So you guys had, I mean, you guys had a good run when you were there too. I mean, the, the second year you're there, you beat Princeton, you blew out UCLA, beat Notre Dame in a thriller, and you guys eventually lost to uh, Virginia, which had Ralph Sampson. 
Um, do you guys really believe you could have beat the UCLA's and Notre Dame's because of that roster? I mean, you guys had six, what, maybe six, seven future NBA players on that roster. What was that run like, if you remember? Oh, it was it was an incredible run. Yeah, nothing else, nothing beats the NCAA tournament. Uh, the the one loss and you're out, and the uh, coverage and uh, the excitement it gets. Uh, it's it's one of the great you know things in college sports. So now we we you know we knew from just the, the season and the season before that we could compete with those teams and play with those teams and uh, uh, you know took a spectacular last second drive. Uh, by and bucket by Danny Ainge for us to overcome Notre Dame in a close game in the in the first round of the regionals, but uh, we were very confident to do it. I, you know, we maybe kind of surprised some people because sometimes the West Coast basketball with the time zone difference or the mountain, you know, the mountain uh, time zone at the West Coast, you know, you don't get as much you know recognition as back east, and that was the beginning of the years of you know all the heyday of the Big East, and of course the ACC was what it was, so they got a lot of the you know, and UCLA had its long tradition. So a lot of the basketball world and media and fans kind of focused on those those teams. But we were, uh, you know, we were right up there with them. And, uh, and uh, you know, that uh, got beat by Ralph. They also had Jeff Lamp. I think Rick Carlisle was redshirting on that team that year. But they had a good all-around team. I, I, you know, not to say that uh, I think in a, you know, I don't know, three out of them. In five games, and maybe we would win a couple, beat them a couple of times. So we weren't that far apart from when we were that close to going to the Final Four. Um, you know, and our, our, my freshman year, we had a really, really good team. I didn't play as much. I didn't even start as a freshman. We had all conference center, and uh, but we were uh, we lost to Larry Nance's uh, Clemson team in kind of an upset, kind of blew a lead in the first round. And so those were our two best shots in the uh, you know in the tournament. Now, um, your last tournament run, was that when you realized you had a legit shot at making the NBA? Or what was uh, – like, what were your feelings like going into the draft or the draft process for, like, you? Uh, well, I mean, it was always a goal to make the NBA and play professional basketball. But um, when I um, – so as I went through my senior senior year, we had kind of a New Yorker season. We were co-champions for the conference, but we didn't even play in any – postseason play, but I had some really good advice, which uh, I don't know a lot of people didn't do. I, I uh, you know, actually, there'd been a player, uh, that guy was a uh, senior, my senior year, got drafted in the third round and then didn't stay in good shape, went to rookie camp and training camp out of shape, got got cut, uh, went overseas, played some, but anyway, we had a, was a guy named Paul Ruffner who did the radio play-by-play, I mean, sorry, radio uh, color commentator for our BYU games, and he, he kind of mentor. He was a six ten, six eleven guy. He played in the NBA and ABA back in the uh, late sixties and early seventies. And uh, he just said, you know, you gotta, you gotta in condition. You gotta do some. So I did a lot of running, a lot of training, a lot of drills and things like that after the uh, uh, after the college season was over, because you know your team kind of stops. You're not working out, so. That March, April, May, I stayed prepared and I was in really good shape and uh, got to go to what was then called the Aloha Classic. It was one of the premier senior um, um, events or and um, did well out there and then got invited to the NBA pre-draft camp and did pretty well there. And 
back then the team, you know, the NBA teams didn't really fly you in like they do now to, to work out guys individually. Uh, maybe they did a couple of top guys, but we kind of had indication that it might be, you know, a low first round pick, but we thought for sure it'd go in the second round, if nothing else. And, um, so I was, you know, and I wasn't even up in New York. I was 21st pick when there were 23 teams in the league. I was sitting here in my in-laws living room watching on Turner Network when we were, when, uh, when the Celtics picked me. So, uh, it was, uh, it was a nice, uh, a little bit of a nice surprise. Yeah, I mean, that must have been a, a surreal experience to go to a team like the Boston Celtics. I mean, what was that training camp like? Because that must have been unbelievable to go up against arguably the greatest front court of all time in training camp. I mean, what what was that training camp like for you? Yeah, well, you know, obviously, you know, the Celtics tradition, and they, they, they had been, you know, won the championship in 81, and were right up there, one of the top teams in the league, and everybody, you know, was getting to know you know, Bird, I'd see Bird, Larry play in college and Mikhail Parrish. And so, you know, in one standpoint, it just seemed like the natural rhythm of life for basketball here. It's, you know, October, you're starting, you know, uh, or you're getting ready in August, September, physical conditioning. And then you're, you know, you're October, you're starting training camp. And so it just kind of seemed normal and you're practicing. And, but then I'd, I'd, I'd go home sometimes and kind of pitch myself, hey, hey, I'm out here with, you know, Parrish Bird, Mikhail, Dennis Johnson, and my, you know, wasn't like I was unfamiliar with playing or going up against NBA guys or future NBA guys at high school and college level, but being a teammate with them there and being in that setting. And then I think one of our first uh, exhibition games, we went down to Philly to play the Sixers. And, you know, you go out games like 7.30, so go, guys go out like 6, 6.30, get some shots up on their own. I'm out there. And Julius Irving walks out, and Doc says, "Hi, Greg." And I'm like, <laughs> "Who said that?" You know, he knows my name. How does he know my name? You know, kind of yeah. thing. So it was, uh, 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 yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was awesome being in there. But you know, the biggest thing, really, and a lot of people don't realize, may not realize, is this: when you move up a level like that, from high school to college, or college to the pros, or you know, whether it's college to the NBA, college to the NFL, just the the size, speed, length, strength is just magnified. You know, guys are so much just bigger, longer, quicker, and um, smarter players and things like that. It's just uh, it takes it takes a little bit of an adjustment time for most players because yeah. of that, and certainly did for me. Absolutely, and uh, I mean that Celtics team. I mean, it definitely had some funny personalities and some characters. They like to have a lot of fun from everything that we read, but I mean. Did you have any, like, funny rookie duties on that team? I mean, did you have to go get, like, ML Carr, the newspaper, or anything like that? No, they weren't too much for doing. Fetching that, I might uh, you know, have heard, heard of that, the, the donut stories and the newspapers. <laughs> but uh, we, had the, uh, we had the ball and chain, we called it. So myself and Carlos Clark were the rookies. And uh, back then, the, uh, the trainer – the coaches had carried around your own VCR equipment to play tapes, believe it or not, you know, even when I went on the road or stuff. And, and so we were always in charge of that. And then the equipment manager would have the uh, equipment bag, but we had to pass out the, uh, and pick up the, uh, uh, the practice gear. So like, if you're on the road, you know, they had a mid bag of practice gear and you go knock on a guy's hotel door, hang on his door, leave it there and then picked it up after practice. And, and, <laughs> So I asked Kevin, Mikhail, I said, Kevin, do you, do you have to do this on a rookie? He said, 
He said, no, if they wanted to, if they'd wanted a, a bellhop, they would have drafted a bellhop. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he might have had to do it. I don't know. But, but, <laughs> but that, that was our main, uh, main duties. I mean, there might've been once or twice when they asked us for a paper or something like that. That was kind of the, the year round orientation. And then the problem was the team that was like the, the Celtics of veteran, if he, if he didn't have a rookie that, they said, hey, if we don't, we don't, we don't have a rookie next year. You're, you're still going to do this next year. But uh, I think we had a Rick Carlisle next year, so he got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We love hearing those stories for sure. And I mean, another question I love to ask because we always get some interesting answers. Who is? I mean, what was your welcome to the league moment? And what I mean by that was, who was the first guy to really burn you to where you're thinking, "Wow, I'm in the NBA." Oh. I never got burned in the NBA. I just foul them before they burned me. <laughs> uh, I don't know how they looked at it that way. Um, well, shoot, you know, the, I mean, just in practice, Mikhail Parrish, man, these guys are shooting. I'm guarding them, and you can't even get near their shot or bother them. I'm like, you know, okay, so you just had to figure it out. But um, um, uh, welcome to the NBA moment. Um, a little different. We're playing, a, I think it was an exhibition game. When for some reason, we uh, it might have been next year. We played the Lakers for four games in exhibition one year, but we played them every year, at least <laughs> twice. And I'm guarding uh, Swin Nader, and uh, uh, who was backup center behind Kareem then. It was and Swin has been a really, really good player. Um, anyway, he just turned around and punched me in the stomach. <laughs> 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 the nothing was seen or called or something, but a couple of guys said Big Maxwell and. I think Emma Carr saw it, or I said something about it, and they're joking about it. And he said, "Yeah, well, welcome." He said, "Swin." They were imitating, you know. He's just, he's just saying to you, "Welcome, young boy." <laughs> so, uh, but I, I tell you another thing that was kind of a here's a here's an eye opener. Which game we were playing Philly? I think it was our rookie year in Boston. I guess we played them two exhibition games, and um, a fight broke out in. Uh, the game, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I don't think it was that famous one with, with Larry and Dr. J, but so it broke out, and some guys leave the bench, and M.O. Carr and Quinn Buckner are saying, Oh, now Rooks, me and Carlos, stay here, stay here, you know, don't 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 get yourself messed up right now. Because all they did then was find you a few hundred bucks. But more than that, Billy Cunningham was out in the court, and Red Arbach came out of the stands and was on the court. And I'm going, What is this like? WWE wrestling or whatever, <laughs> and, and melee Billy Cunningham got his sport coat like ripped <laughs> in half or something. But it was uh, that was uh, that was an interesting beginning there. That's so. insane. <laughs> we had uh, we had Swen on our show a couple months ago, and he was uh, so excited to tell us that he's a magician now. <laughs> that was like, oh really? Yeah, that was the big thing. He's like, do you want to know what I'm doing now? And I was like. Sure. He's like, I'm a magician. <laughs> he's like talking to us about like a magic trick and like it was, it was pretty cool. Got a Vegas, does he have a Vegas show going or something? <laughs> he's like a comedian slash magician. It's hysterical. He was a man, you want to talk about a wild interview. He told crazy stories, man. Really nice really? guy. Yeah, yeah. Did, does he have a way to make a seven footer disappear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell him if they saw him in half, they, they don't. If he, like the old magic trick, they only, they, he's only got a 
and then you make him a standard size guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, that, that rookie year altogether must have been pretty wild for you because, I mean, you go to the NBA Finals your first year. I mean, as a rookie, I don't even really know how to ask this question, but did you understand the meaning of the rivalry of the Lakers-Celtics at the time? I mean, what was that whole experience like? Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely being, I mean, you know, not being a part of it before, but knew of it, but just being around the team and being around the city and the fans and the media, absolutely that. And, and, and the rivalries in the East, like with, with Philly, especially, who was very good at that time too. So, um, it was, um, uh, definitely something that all those years, and you know, when we went to the NBA finals four years in a row, uh, that, uh, you know, we were watching what was going on with the Lakers or the other top teams in the East. I mean, I remember you talk about the newspaper. I remember specifically, you know, just times in the dinky practice locker room, you know, guys grabbing the paper and talking after practice and saying, hey, yo, the Lakers lost last night. We would constantly look at what our record was to the Lakers or Philly or Milwaukee or whoever was the better teams in the, in the East to make sure we had – we were always shooting to have the best record because it was so important for home court advantage. And even even though even though the coaches probably didn't care about it, one big, big thing, too, was we wanted to send our – have the best record at All-Star break in East, so we'd send our coaches to the All-Star game. So um, it was definitely there. We, 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 we watched it, talked about it. And then when we did get in those games with the Lakers in the, in the playoffs, it was so intense. And that was – that's, I think, the next year in 85 we played them and we won the championship in seven games in, in 84. And, uh, and then we're playing them four games in exhibition the next year. And there was a, there was a fight with Robert Parrish and, uh, and Maurice Lucas that broke out in an exhibition game <laughs> next year. But, uh, I don't know, you guys, you probably guys probably saw the 30 for 30 that did it on Lakers and Celtics a few oh, years yeah. ago. Oh yeah. And they had, and you know, some of that stuff I, you know, kind of remembered, but the stuff about the '84 series was so spot on. That was that was great the way they put that all together, like Max doing the choke sign at the free throw line, walking right in front of Worthy, and <laughs> just all the smack talking. And the the McHale clothesline, which was, uh, you know, which was accidental. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think he was trying. Just two guys going in different directions. He wasn't trying to clothesline them, but you know the philosophy and the thought in those days wasn't and Kevin wasn't much for doing it you, you know you didn't want you didn't want your guys who were playing 35 minutes to get in early foul trouble or anything but you make them make layups you know you don't let them you make and so the Lakers had just been killing us so I think that was right before that clothesline game when Larry had made his famous call out and then the uh in the media that we were, you know, we were playing like a bunch of sissies, or the other guys were. So, um, um, but uh, yeah, you know, the, the idea back then was, hey, if the guy's got, you know, he was there an 80% free throw shooter, go make him make two points on the free throw line. And like the old, you know, NFL, or even now, you know, the, the, this good receiver, but he's a, little, he's a little gun shy when he goes over in the middle because he might take a shot, you know, from a defensive back was, Hey, if they're going to the basket, if this guy's going to the basket, make him think, you know, especially a perimeter guy, make him think about it. You know, yeah. not trying to hurt him. But so, so that was, you know, that physicality that, that, that kind of lit that maybe that 
clothesline play lit that kind of maybe turned that tide in that series because it was definitely uh, kind of in their favor at that time, the momentum, but uh, we took it back. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the 30 for 30 because one of the things I was curious about was they, they really didn't talk a whole lot about Red Arbach and some of his, um, I, I guess, techniques to give you guys more of a home court advantage. I wanted to ask somebody personally. So I, I want to ask you, are, are those stories true? I mean, would you guys, you know, maybe turn off the AC in their locker rooms or, you know, give them nothing but cold water for the cold showers? I mean, what can you tell us about some of Red's uh, tricks to kind of build your home court advantage? Well, I, if you know, Kevin McHale didn't, it wasn't with Red's tricks, but Kevin used to talk about stealing, stealing the other guy's brainwaves. So, <laughs> if it wasn't true, maybe it was in their head, you know <laughs> what I mean? So I don't know. You know, I, I don't know that any, uh, you know, that you always heard that about the hot locker room and stuff like that, but, and, and turning off the heat, but, Maybe was it done? Maybe a time or two over the years, or, um, pre the 1980s or during them. Perhaps they didn't ask me to do it, so I don't know that it happened. But uh, but maybe certainly teams thought about it. You know, maybe it's part of the thing. I mean, the Boston Garden back then was an old and ancient building, and and it wasn't like <laughs> it was it was a luxury luxurious locker room or anything. Or, to begin with, so you know those and the other tricks. I I don't know. They were they were they were good stories, if nothing else. And like I said, maybe maybe uh, you know maybe it's a little hot in there or whatever, and guys just start thinking about it a little bit, and that's the edge you want in sports. Yeah, because I I still have the image of Kareem at the oxygen in my head right now. I mean, I'll, I don't think I'll ever get that image out of my head of just how hot and exhausting exhausted the Lakers were in that series. Yeah, and that 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 because it wasn't because it turned it up. That just because the garden wasn't air conditioned, and that was like the first week of June or whatever. And there was a heat wave in Boston where it was like you know ninety and ninety ninety five degrees all week and ninety percent humidity. So in the gym, it was just as hotter, hotter. So <laughs> we were as hot as they were, but uh, um, that was uh, that's just part of that old building. And that's that home court advantage you talk about because. You know, I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in Jersey, and the difference in humidity in, on that East Coast compared to West Coast is totally different birds. So it's like, you know, like a West Coast team that doesn't deal with a lot of humidity, like Los Angeles, when they come over there, they're dealing with that humidity, especially in that old building. You'd hear horror stories about how humid it was in there. You know, that's got to be that's got to be a home court advantage for sure. So they get you, uh, they get you the second time. And then the third year, you guys add Bill Walton, which is like one of our favorite like personalities ever. Um, it's obvious what he brought to that team that year. Do you have a good Bill Walton story for us? Like, did he take you any Grateful Dead concerts, or is there any anything good you can give us about Bill Walton? Yeah, yeah. I just saw an article in the Life Found, and we've talked to a lot of people about it. About the yeah, of course, Bill's the ultimate deadhead. And yeah, one of my favorite people too, favorite teammates of all the time is Bill Walton. It's great, great story. So, um, you know, so Bill had, had you know, telling us about the dead, he'd wear his tie-dye shirts and he had dead stickers on his locker and stuff like that. And he gave Danny a couple of tapes, <laughs> a couple of cassette tapes. And, and Danny said, I just can't get into it. Gave them back. And I don't know, Bill said something about, uh, got to get into it. Music, but anyway, so the dead comes, you know, they do these tours, and, and we got all these 
you know, deadheads come to town and they come to Boston area and stay for about a week and play like a couple of shows in Worcester, a couple of nights in Worcester, I think down in Providence too, so around like a week. And uh, so I ended up not going and Danny didn't go, but he Bill took the team there to the to the concert. But um, anyway, before the concert, in between the concert, we happened to have some days off and we we're practicing. And these guys like, uh, I'll forget to mix up their names, but Mickey Hart, Phil Lesh, Crutzman, some of these guys came to practice. And our practices were like maybe 10, 30, 11 in the morning at this little uh, t- tiny Aladdin college gym. And they're just sitting there in the, you know, the small bleachers watching. And, and, and so we had Bill say, Bill, when's Jerry Garcia coming to practice? And Bill says, Jerry hadn't seen daylight since 1968, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably true. And then, and then the next year, Jerry got went into a coma, so we got like daily reports on his update on on, his, on how he was doing from Bill. But yeah, but yeah, Bill was tight with those guys. You know, they uh, he, he I guess he went to his first concert with them when he was 15, and then he's like in UCLA or something, and. The guys in the band noticed, and they said, "Why is everybody sitting down and that that dude standing up on a chair?" They said, "No, that's Bill Walton. He's like <laughs> seven feet one or whatever." And uh, but uh, yeah, it was it, it was it was something. That's amazing. Yeah, we I mean we love Bill Walton. I think, and it's it's funny too because I remember. I mean, I'm a huge Knicks fan, but I mean, how could you not watch the Celtics and Lakers back then? And I remember that season. Um, how much of a cheerleader he was on the bench. And we talked about injuries earlier. I mean, that guy was robbed of, of uh, um, uh, he could have had such a better career. I mean, his knees really kind of gave out on him, unfortunately, you know, where he could have yeah. played longer. Um, but I always thought that was really cool how much he was, he seemed like a cheerleader of the team, but he still produced when he got in the games. And I think people don't realize like how valuable he of a piece he was in, in that 86 team. I mean, do you agree with me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Bill Bill um, was in the Hall of Fame, but, you know, by the time he came to the Celtics, I think that was about his 13th year in the league, and he probably literally only had about four years' worth of playing time because I didn't know it then. I knew he had a lot of surgeries, but I, he had over a dozen surgeries, I think, on his knees and over 20 or 30 surgeries on his feet. And wow. I think it's, you know, later led here when in retirement, he had to have some of his back fused. But even back then, he'd only wear tennis shoes around because of his feet and ankles. And anyway, but as, as, as uh, and, and, you know, I'd heard a lot of stories and, of course, seen him in college, you know, on TV. But my, our, our college coach, Frank Arnold, was an assistant with Bill. So uh, at UCLA when Bill was there. So just, uh you know, even with that limited uh, physical abilities, kind of like, and you know, it's kind of like when our baby, our Vita Sabonis came to the NBA and, uh, you know, at 30 plus years old, he wasn't physically the same way. You know, when our Vitas was in his 20s, a lot of people in the basketball world thought he was the best basketball player in the world, period, you know, when he's playing over in Europe. And, and Bill probably was too. You go look at those early years of the Trailblazers, you know, at the championship and then the, on their way to another championship and he gets hurt. And, uh, you know, but even with us, with the Celtics, like, for example, I've never seen a better, a rebounder with better timing than Bill Walton. You couldn't get the, you couldn't get the ball off the, when you go up and get offensive rebound or defensive rebound, you couldn't get it any quicker. 
I mean, it's, it's off the rim. Literally, he had it snatched, and, and then he was a phenomenal passer, phenomenal outlet passer. Um, you know, he, he could he could make baskets. Although Kevin Kevin McHale, I see, he's giving crap. He'd say, you know, he said, Bill, man, you got you got these World War II moves. You got to get some new space age moves like me <laughs> under the basket. But uh, Bill was a lot of fun. We had a lot of uh, very great sarcastic humor and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, ragging on him and, and him ragging on us and we, that's a lot of give and take and you know if anybody uh really i i love watching pac-12 basketball games just to listen to bill go off on something but you know that positive thing you talk about you hear him doing that now you know when he's, when he's doing basketball games he'll talk about you know this team such a great you know you can, you're going like it's overboard but he he uh you know, he he was that way as a player. You know, he was all about the team and all about winning. And so, like you said, a cheerleader on the bench, but and but that attitude was just you know, it was it was part of what made him a great player and made the teams that he played on great. Yeah, it's definitely important to teams, and I'm with you. I love listening to him on the Pac-12 Network because, and also I like seeing Dave Pash feed him cupcakes on TV too. But uh, yeah. uh, you know, that season, yeah. you also drafted Len Bias, and I mean, obviously that wasn't easy news for anyone. But I mean, what do you remember most from that whole thing? And I mean, from an organizational standpoint, it seemed like they didn't really know where to go after that because it seemed like their only plan as far as building for the future was when bias, because it seemed like it's really hard to, you know, part with hall of famers. I mean, what do you remember from that? Yeah. I mean, that was a big blow uh, because, you know, red and our back, um, you know, told us a lot about him. Of course, we've never seen him some in college games, but uh, you know, red lived his whole career in Washington DC and he's really close with lefty Drizel and of course, John Thompson. And he went to, a lot of the Maryland games, he would come up to Boston for the games and just had an apartment or something up in Boston. But, um, you know, red was telling us, you know, this is, this kid's is, you know, he's the six, eight Michael Jordan and, uh, and just very, very talented. So the fact that they were able even able to get that draft pick, uh, was, was a great move. He came up and you know, he was up for a visit, like a physical or something. Uh, we're in the playoffs of, a few weeks before the draft, so I got to meet him then. And then the shock that he's, he's he's dead on draft day or the next day was an incredible blow. And then you add to that too, you know, a couple of years later, Reggie Lewis dying. It was a, you know, Reggie was a an All Star caliber player too. So, you know, teams get old, but you got to have. And uh, uh, certainly, the, you know, the Celtics of the mid '80s, um, you know, by by '87 when when Lenny died. You know, Kevin had already had a screw put in his foot that summer, and you know, Chief was in his mid thirties. Larry started having issues. Dennis Johnson was older, so you needed a new uh, player like that. And it's hard to it's hard to find great players like that. Period. And then you're all you know, even when you're out there in the market, just fitting them in with salary cap and trades and things like that is not easy. So those. You know that blow; those two blows would have made the uh, transition a lot different from, uh, uh, you know, the Celtics here with their if they had not passed away those two guys. Yeah, absolutely, and that was, I mean, tragic to everybody. And I know the city of Boston is definitely feeling that too, and not just Boston, but basically the whole basketball world. But um, you ended up playing Houston and not LA in the '86 finals, and a lot of people believe that '86 team might have been the best team. This might sound like a weird question, but 
were you guys upset to not see LA in the finals or were you thrilled knowing that it might be a little easier matchup for you? No, I, I think we were looking forward to playing the, uh, the, um, the Lakers and kind of that, you know, here was the, the third year in a row. So here's a rubber match and, uh, we were looking forward to them, and we knew our team was better that year than it had been the, the year, two years before. So we were uh, we were here to play them. Uh, but and on the other hand, we knew we knew about the Houston Rockets, and then you know that was I think uh, Olajuwon and Samson's second and third year, and they had some other good guys around them. So it wasn't like there was okay, we're we got an easier route for sure. I mean, it, maybe ultimately it was a little bit, but uh, I think we still went one and six games against the Rockets, but, you know, that was just turned on. That was, I think, Ralph Sampson hit a, a big turnaround jumper at the buzzer or something in a key game, key game five or something in that series against the Lakers. And, and so the, the Rockets pulled that upset, but uh, they were very talented too. So, But it would have been nice. But we did end up obviously going back in 87 and playing the, uh, the Lakers and lost, so that was a little, a little disappointing. But... Um, you know, I, didn't, I didn't realize until uh, LeBron and, and Dwayne Wade and Bosch in Miami did it that that was, that was we were the last team before that, and there had only been three teams at that point to go through to four NBA finals in a row. And then, of course, the, the Warriors did it, and they, they went to five in a row. But look at the Warriors. They were a younger bunch of guys, their core bunch, but you look at them after the fifth year, same thing, that injury bug. You know, uh, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant. You know, all serious injuries. So it it that's a, that's a that's a tough thing to do as a team to stay up that you know in that at that championship level for three, four, five years in a row. And, and because you're playing so long, you know, deep into the summer, it uh, it takes a toll on you physically. Yeah, you know, another great point about that too. If we're talking about the new new squads, is that it seems like everybody's leaving teams a lot faster. So you lose that continuity and that, that gelling of a team when you got a guy like Durant, for example, you know, he's, he's playing with the Warriors. They're playing some of their best basketball and then he jumps over to the nets. So then it's like, you got to try to fill that void. And, and it's, it's definitely not like it was back in the day where, you know, I mean, bird played with the Celtics the whole time. Magic played with the, you know, the Lakers the whole time. You have that continuity of, of showing up every training camp with almost the same amount of your core guys, right? Yeah, you, I mean, yeah, definitely. You got, you know, you probably used to have ten or fifteen percent of who were usually Hall of Famer star players who played the whole career in one place, or guys who played most of it then had a tail end, you know, like a Carl Malone going to the Lakers for a year or something like that. So, yeah, a lot more movement of the superstars. I mean, there's always been movement of the of the. Uh, the backup players and the and the spot starters and the, the journeymen, you know, like I was, there's always movement. But, um, but yeah, you know, one of the things with uh, championship teams and contenders is always, I've always said that it's a matter of not only individual experience, but collective experience, you know, and, and also the chemistry, how they fit together and all that, work together and play well. But without that, that, that collective experience makes a, you know, makes a big difference. You just, you know, one, guys know how to play and they know how to, and two, they know how to play together. Like I remember Danny with, Ainge was playing with the Suns with Barkley 
you know, Dan Marley and Kevin Johnson, and they were in the finals against the Bulls. And they had two rookies, Oliver Miller and Richard Dumas, who were talented guys, but they were relying upon them for heavy minutes. And he just, you know, he said that just sometimes in the playoffs and stuff like that, especially those guys, just their inexperience, you know, hurt them because they didn't have that experience. So, um, you know, most most contending teams have guys who play together for a while, and then the backup guys who play key roles use their guys who've got some good experience in the league. Yeah, you make a great point. That's true. That's very true with, like, you know, the playoffs, like, from what we hear, is just a different gear compared to the regular season. If you've got guys that have been playing playoff experience six, seven, eight years, it's it's going to really help your team compared to, like you said, like a guy like an Oliver Miller that's that's a rookie. You know, I mean, I think the one team that kind of got away with it was the Rockets in 94-95 with uh, Ori and Cassell being being rookies and first, second, second-year players, but – yeah, for the most part, I totally agree with you. I got to ask you a Larry Bird question um, because he's so known for this, and I, I've gone down you, YouTube rabbit holes just, like, watching this. What's your favorite Larry Bird trash talk story that most listeners might not know about? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> probably most people do. There's some great videos and stuff on YouTube, you know, like the one of Xavier and Daniel. Tell them, hey, X, I'm going to shoot it right in your face in this spot. But, uh, uh, you know, just specific ones. I mean, Larry was always telling guys, you know, stuff like, guy would check in the game and said, hey, you know, your coach must not like you. <laughs> guy would check in the game to guard Larry. He said, you know, your coach must not like you. He's got you guarding me. <laughs> or, or he said he'd, he'd go to shoot a shot. And depending on who the guy was, if the guy was bigger than him, he'd say too big or too slow. Or, or too, if he's small, he's too little or too oh, old. Right. <laughs> Something like that. Just to, uh, to cut him. Oh, here, here's, here's the best guy. He's kind of a, not exactly a trash talk, but we're playing the Knicks in Madison Square Garden. And Knicks had a uh, longtime trainer, Mike Saunders. And so, you know, Larry's been out to shoot early, and Jesse and Mike were, you know, trading, you know, talking junk to each other. And, and uh, so they, they, Mike made a bet with Larry. He said, I bet you five bucks you won't bank in a three-pointer during the game. So we're playing this game, and it's a tight game, and it's about, um, uh, you know, uh, 50 seconds left. And the Knicks are up, like, two points. And there's a dead ball and uh, maybe a free throw going on. And Mike Sanders, Saunders catches Larry's eye, you know, there from the he holds up five fingers and he's smiling like, I got you because Larry had to make the three-pointer. Well, the next trip down the court with us down two, game on the line, Larry shoots a three-pointer and banks it in and turns backpedaling the mic and holds up five. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> so so the, the trash talking, you know, is this, this the, the, the great confidence he had. Kevin was a great trash talker too. Uh, and, uh, um, but, uh, um, you know, I, I mentioned you talked about the brain games and what Red did. You know, what those guys did and what, what a lot of great players do, it, it, the trash talk wasn't isn't like a macho, you know, stuff. It, it, it was more of a tool to get in some guy's head. And sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't, you know. But but those guys, you know, as great players, they're already in a guy's head. But they, and it probably also for Larry and guys who used it a lot kind of way to get their you know, there's Tyke going a little bit, but they're using it as a as a um, as a gamesmanship tool, just like a 
it's like a pitcher in baseball might throw one near your chin, you know, if you <laughs> if you if you took them deep last time, you know, they're going to get you back off the plate, that kind of thing. Or, uh, but that's you know, in in, in basketball, uh, that, that, that's how they use it. So yeah. here, here, speaking of trash talk, I got to go. Well, I got this one. Remember this. So you guys may know that Moses Malone was famous for not enunciating very well. And in fact, when he was like rookie in the ABA, he got the nickname Mumbles, and uh, and he kind of had this southern accent and stuff. And, and so he always wore mouthpiece. So um, uh, Kevin McHale says, um, so after game, you said near the end of one game, Moses was gone at me. He's going, he's going, Mahale, Mahale. <laughs> And so Moses takes out his mouthpiece and says, Mahale. <laughs> I don't know. He may have been saying good game for all I said. So Kevin just said, Have you? And <laughs> so maybe Moses was talking fast, but he didn't know it. And then um, here's a better one, too. The best one all the time, maybe. Uh, Bark. Um, Danny Ainge got switched on to Charles Barkley, and Barkley had him in the post. And uh, just got caught on camera with somewhere. I don't know if it's out there, but anyway. Uh, so Barkley's calling for the ball and going, I got a little one. I got a little one. And Danny's guarding him you know, in the post and kind of reaches around and points toward his crotch and says, you sure do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Barky just starts cracking up. I don't even think he catch the ball. He's cracking up so hard. So. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. The 80s, 90s trash trash talk was on point back then for sure. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask this question. We hear a lot about the business of the NBA being pretty ruthless. Um, I know that you were traded a few times, but do you remember the first time that you got traded and how did you find out? Uh, yeah, actually, it was sent to the Clippers. It was actually got waived and um, picked up on waivers by the Clippers. The Clippers wanted were interested in trading for me, but um, they would have had to give up a draft pick or something. And what they what happened was, I was it was my fifth year with the Celtics, about halfway through the season. That was that eighty seven, eighty eight season after a year after uh, Lenny Bias had died and and, and uh, had a lot of injuries with guys. Um, Mikhail was having problems with Bird. Uh, Walton, I don't think, was playing anyway. So they brought in artist Gilmore as a um, backup uh, center. And they, they, to make room, they put me on the injured list. And uh, you could kind of hide out. You know, you can always have a back that's sore. Mine still is. But, but uh, uh, so they put me on the injured list with a back strain or something. And uh, back then, it's different now because the way they do, they don't even do the injured list. They just do an active roster now. You could, um, another team could challenge that. And so the Celtics were getting challenged whether I was injured or not. And I was going to have to do a, a exam with the league doctor. So anyway, we talked it over and ended up just waving me. And uh, that's how I got picked up to the, and to go to the Clippers. So it was all-star break. The Clippers claimed me, you know, maybe, maybe it was even the Clippers that put in the cl- complaint. I don't know. You know, they're just a way to force the hand for the Celtics to have to um, do something with me. Um, so um, it was night and day going from there to the Clippers, you know, as far as winning and the atmosphere and the organization, things like that. But on the other hand, it was a really good opportunity for me 
you know, I was there the next year and a half and got to play a lot. And uh, that's one thing, you know, as a young player, you need, you need to uh, get a chance to get playing time and make mistakes and get better. And, uh, you know, I've got, got spot minutes here and there with the Celtics, but when you're on a championship contender, there's not a lot of time to for young guys and rookies to go out there and make, make a lot of mistakes and grow and things like that. So and that was my first, my, my first move. My other moves after that were, uh, free agent signings. So now did you correct me if I'm wrong on this? So did you, did you free agent sign with, um, Charlotte then? I did too. Um, that was actually towards the end of that. It was near the end of my contract that had to come with me from the Celtics to the Clippers in that second year and a half. And the Clippers weren't going to keep me around the next year. So they, they waived me with about a month left or something in the season, maybe six weeks, to take a look at some other guys. And so um, Charlotte offered me a deal. I played with Charlotte the rest of the season. Um, so I played with Charlotte maybe six weeks, something like that. And in their inaugural season, they um, talked about re-signing me the next year. never did, but I ended up signing in Sacramento uh, with the Kings for a year. It was um, – that was also, and we lived in Orlando in the off season. That was also the first year. Was that eighty nine ninety of the Orlando Magic, and the Magic came close to signing me, but uh, ended up in Sacramento, and then had a good year there as far as you know playing time and establishing myself more as a as at least a good backup in the league. And then I was able to sign a free, as a free agent with the Magic, where I played a little over four years. So you go. So you so basically, and and the Magic. You mean basically the expansion team, both expansion teams. I'm sure that was kind of weird going from like the Celtics, you know, the championship teams to the Magic, where you were probably the guy that was more of the locker room leader, I would assume. Um, what was your first impressions of Shaq and Penny like? I mean, you'd been around the league for a bit. Um, do you, It was it like almost like, could you see the greatness in them right away? or Or what was your first thoughts on those guys? Well, when I first started telling Shaq, I'm still pissed about it because, I, you know, most of those two years before Shaq came, I was a starter. And then for some reason, they gave him my starting job, and they never <laughs> never gave me an explanation on that. But, no, Shaq was Shaq – was, so Shaq was there my third year, and he was the year before Penny. So Shaq was unique, you know. And we – our our coach was uh, – there's just nobody with that kind of power that I've ever played against and probably rarely ever in the NBA power being that – combination of strength and quickness and how fast you could move with force and um you know at 7-1 and even then as a rookie like 320 or something in shape and solid he was just so quick and you know the um our, our coach was matt gukas who played at the philadelphia warriors or maybe there was 70 i think they're the warriors then back when wilt chamberlain was about 27 28 years old and remember Matt telling us before the draft, he said, you know, this is the closest thing I, he can, he can even point to as somebody who's ever been in the league was, was Will, you know, as far as the, the physical uh, abilities and, and, and the body that he had. And uh, so Shaq was, you know, Shaq was a good guy, uh, a good, good competitor, you know, worked hard, uh, definitely got better, you know, over passing skills and, some moves around the basket and things over the years. But, you know, one of the most phenomenal things, there was an unofficial stat kept by somebody in the league of how many times everybody in the league dunked. 
And uh, the leader, I think, before Shaq came, was usually it was somebody dunked about one and a half to two times a game. Was leader, I think it was Larry Nance, like 1.8 dunks per game or something. The year before Shaq came, those next four or five years, Shaq was dunking about five times a game. Yeah, you know, and that doesn't count just the ones that get through the basket. So that that's just phenomenal to, to be able to, you know, with all those big guys out there to get the ball, at, you know, to the basket and dunk it with people hanging on you or going around them or going through them over them. So phenomenal there, and then. Um, and, you know, we had some good shooters, uh, uh, Scott Skiles and Dennis Scott and, and Jeff Turner and Nick Anderson around him. And I thought, okay, I'm in a pretty darn good position here. I can be a backup to this guy, and that's where I was, you know, getting older, playing 10 minutes or whatever you know, the backup time is. And um, anyway, then, then they got Penny the next year. And we had had some guys here around here in the summer, along with some college guys that would work out. and. Uh, they brought Penny into this small church gym that we were working out in in the summer and played pickup there with him a couple of times. And yeah, you could see right away that one, he was a, he was a phenomenal talent, you know, six, seven, handled the ball, just smart gym rat. And, uh, it was, a that was a, a, a great combination. And then you saw what it did, you know, they, uh, um, uh, went to the finals pretty quickly and, uh, and, uh, Shame if they if they'd been able to keep that combination together for a few more years, and you know Shaq hadn't gone to LA, I'm sure they would have won some championships together. I completely agree with you on that. And you know, I, one other thing that you brought up that I'm glad you did was is a lot of people don't think of Shaq in the Magic years. They think of him obviously in the Laker years, and then he kind of gets a little bit out of shape towards the end of his career. But that guy was in phenomenal shape especially for his size and his weight when he was playing with the magic and you're totally right i think i think that team wins a couple because they were just that team was really young you know what i mean i mean they had ho grant on that mm-hmm. team i mean they they stick together Shaq doesn't go to la like you said i i guarantee you they especially i, I do think they give i do think they give the bulls some headaches for sure if they get past the bulls i mean if penny stays healthy too there's a lot of variables like we've talked about earlier in the uh, early in the pod with you. Do you have uh, do you got one Shaq story for us that we might not have heard of? Shaq story, uh, let me think. Um, I'll to jog my memory here with something. Um, you know, everybody's, everybody's heard about him breaking the backboards and bringing the backboards down in those games. And I, and I think definitely the one in Jersey, he did it, try to do it intentionally just for the, 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 the notoriety and the hype. But, uh, you know, there was one, uh, there was one time where, um, uh, Scott Skiles was five. He loved playing with Scott. Scott was an awesome, awesome, uh, competitor. And, uh, they got in a, 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 a fight in practice. Here's Scott Skiles about six feet, six feet one and Shaq and Scott's like jumping on his back. And I think, uh, <laughs> Jack just flicked him off like a flea or something like that. But, uh, you know, oh, you know, Texas, he's just a good guy, generous guy. I had a, there's a long time season ticket holder. He probably still does. He used to own a dunk, bunch of Dunkin' Donuts around here. And, and, uh, and, uh, Shaq would, uh, went in there one time to one of the shops and, uh, and, uh, and bought a couple dozen donuts or some bagels or something and gave this, 
gave the girl there working the counter to like eighteen, a hundred dollar tip. Wow. You know, and she's just jumping up and down just before cell phones and stuff like that. So she she goes to the uh the store owner the next day and says says, Oh, Mr. Copeland, can I get can you know, they had these cameras up there. So can I get the, the camera? I gotta get a picture of Shaq doing that, give me a hug and and he said, oh, they're, they're, he could tell her there were dummy cameras there just to kind of keep the, <laughs> the employees honest. But but, uh, but that was typical shock. He was, and he still does. You hear that about him taking care of, uh, you know, kids' funerals and things like that. Just a lot of stuff around. Good, just a just a good-hearted guy and a lot of fun. You know, he's sitting there in the locker room floor and getting into the, a break dance. And, and uh and they had their, he and a couple of guys were the same fraternity, Dennis Scott and uh, the guy with Taylor Green, and we get into their fraternity chants and barking and things like that. But it's just a, just a fun guy and phenomenal talent. Yeah, he seems like, I, I feel like he's such a good, like, ambassador for basketball. I feel like him him on that show with, with Barkley and Kenny Smith and Ernie is just amazing. He's just, he's just a good dude. He just seems like a great guy. Um, so what are you up to these days? Um, Tell us, tell us a little bit about what you got going on these days. Uh, well, I've, uh, a couple things that keep me busy. Says our big family, we're finally empty nesters now, but we got a bunch of kids, and uh, they're all off on their own or in, in school. None of them are here in Orlando. My wife and I are still here in Orlando. We got uh, sixteen going on seventeen grandkids to count too. So we'll have most of them here at Christmas. So we're excited for that. But um, anyway, that keeps us busy. But uh, I'm a, a, a financial advisor. I got into, I've been involved during my career, got involved in some real estate development. One thing led to another, still um, uh, where I got into the financial industry. So we do wealth management. I'm with a firm called Poly Wealth Management, at poly, uh, polywealth.com, P-O-L-L-E-Y. We do financial planning. In fact, I'm sitting here in my office looking out the window downtown Orlando. And uh, uh, then also 25 years ago, uh, my wife had dream and vision kind of start a private school and uh, was with a friend who's a teacher. We did that. It's called Pathway School. We have a nonprofit organization called the Gift of Learning Foundation. So I'm on the, I'm on the board there and uh, they had a high school grades about five years ago. So I helped them start a high school sports program. So I still stay involved with basketball that way. I'm no longer the athletic director and the head coach, but I'm the assistant coach, which is a lot easier. And, right. uh, and I can help him do that and pitch in. And, and it's fun to be there. We just started our games this season. And we, we don't have a gym on campus, so I'm actually project working on that, trying to raise some money and do that to build a gym on campus. We are – and it's cool, too, what we're able to do because we're in a, we're in a, a low-moderate-income neighborhood not that there's a lot of high wages with our theme park economy here in orlando but a lot of kids who typically wouldn't get to go to a private school or have maybe a mild learning disability they're there at the school and so doing good things in a in a, in a little bit of an economically disadvantaged uh, neighborhood in south orlando and hoping make a you know better way for better thing for uh, a better life for some of those kids educationally I love to hear that, man. That's super important. You know, giving back is enormous and, and it sports is, I think one of those super important things to get involved with when you're a kid, because it really teaches you a lot of lessons in life that you can carry with you your whole life. Um, Zach's going to do a little lightning round with you. It's just a one or two word answer to a couple of questions. If you don't mind, Zach, you want to take it away? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first question is, what coach had the biggest impact on your career? Yeah, I had a ton of great coaches, but I'll I'll, I'll go with my uh, um, I'll go with my high school coach actually, Paul Benton. Uh, played college, he was in Texas High School Hall of Fame, so it just gave me a great great foundation, especially on defense and other things that helped me to take me to other levels. But man, I played for Hall of Famers <laughs> in the coaching ranks in the NBA, so all of those guys were great coaches and a great college coach as well. But I'll uh, I'll go with Coach Benton. Okay. Uh, who is the one guy that taught you how to be a true professional? Uh, no, I probably, uh, I'll go with Danny Ainge. Danny was a friend and, and, uh, and we played together two years in college. So it was great to go to the Celtics and have him there. And, and, uh, you know, we did a lot of things together and, uh, rode together a lot. So I kind of, you know, learned the ropes from him, but, uh, you know, I think I was just blessed, though, too, even before that, just having good examples, a lot of great pros there on the Celtics, you know, too, because those guys were all professionals in the way they conducted themselves, took care of themselves, and, and were ready to play and compete every game. So I got to give credit to all my Celtic teammates for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, you played in an in a amazing era. In your opinion, from what you saw with your own eyes, night in, night out, from Jordan, Bird, Magic, Kareem, who is consistently the one guy that just wowed you every night? Well, I get to see Larry more often than anybody else every night. So, I, I, you know, it's just saying not in and night out Larry, but obviously I probably with the guys in the area that I played, you got to point to Michael as probably the best all-around, uh, you know, most athletic competitor, you know, and his, his record speaks for itself. But, um, you know, Larry and Magic could be in that starting five as well. And then getting to play against Kareem, too, even though it was the twilight, you know, last five years of his career. So when I matched up against him, people forget how dominant Kareem was during his, his prime as well. So those were all, uh, all some of the phenomenal players I get to play against. Plus, plus an era of many, many great centers, you know, the Elijah Wands, the Ewings, uh, David Robinson. Yeah. Um, 84 or 86 Celtics? Every championship's a good one. <laughs> you don't get to them too many times, but I'll go with the 86 as okay. far as the uh, best team overall and just a, just a phenomenal uh, um, run that we had. You know, we only lost one home game that year and I think lost two or three games in the playoffs. So. For sure. And uh, what is your favorite and least favorite Shaq movie? <laughs> uh, my favorite, uh, Blue Chips. Uh, and what, what was his other movie? Shazam or something? I guess Shazam was a yellow song. Kazam, I think, where he's the genie. Kazam, Kazam. Uh, you know, my favorite, Shaq, my favorite Shaq piece was I got to be in a Pepsi in a, in a uh, a Pizza Hut commercial with them where they had basketball extras. And a buddy of my mind who'd been at, in some extras, he said, get your get your name, turn around so you see the name on your jersey and get your face so you paid extras. So the <laughs> Shaq's commercials were actually my favorite video pieces he did. But uh, anyway, probably probably Blue Chips, number one, Shazam, but number two, and I'll go with, I enjoy Shaq and the Fool now too. That's fun to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, the, the last question is, what is your favorite basketball memory if you had to pick one? 
favorite basketball memory um, would be, um, I, I'd have to say those championships, you know, the 86 championship and uh, 84 and, and championship parade, you know, we're going, we're going on this parade to downtown Boston with like a million people on the parade route and they get to government square, government center down downtown Boston and we're up on this balcony at city hall and there's like 300,000 people in this, in this plaza and it's like you, you raise your hand and everybody cheers you know it's kind of like being, being the, the pope or mussolini or something up there on the balcony but yeah this one that's those those years in boston definitely the highlight of my basketball career and winning those championships being in those finals against the lakers and the rockets and just a, a, a great era Absolutely. Completely agree with you. Hey, I wanted to say before we let you go, uh, we really appreciate how gracious you were with your time, your stories. We got to learn a lot today. We do this podcast because we love talking to NBA players and, and learning more about the game. We're both students of the game. We both played both played basketball our whole lives. We still do. And um, I just I want to say thank you so much. I mean, it was really uh, enjoyable talking to you today. Zach, do you have anything to add for Mr. Kite before we get out of here? Yeah, just a big thank you. I mean, I always admired what you did on the court and what you brought to team. So, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time and tell us our stories. And, uh, I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to add or promote before we let you to let you go? No, I really appreciate you guys. You guys do a great job. I, I, I when I when you contacted me, I listened to a, your podcast and checked out one by Scott Pollard, and that was fun to listen to. So I might check out some. I actually played with uh, Scott's older brothers played for a year or two at BYU with us and, and uh, so knew his family well and and uh but uh yeah it sounds like you guys do a great job and good luck to you with your your following and building your 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 uh your uh, your, your profile your uh, portfolio there podcast. I appreciate that so, so much. Enjoyed it. Be safe, Mr. Kite and we'll talk to you soon my friend. Okay, thank you. Take care guys. Take care. Bye bye. Wow, what a really cool interview, man. Greg Kite was awesome. Dude, he's, he's such a cool guy. You know, um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting thing that that guy's doing. I like how, you know, we talked about in the interview about how he took what he took from sports and put it into his life all the way through. So, like, the, you know, the business stuff he's doing now, he was smart with his money, real estate investments, um, great stories, the Shaq stuff, the Shaq and Penny stuff. I loved hearing that. I, he was on board with us about the whole, um, you know, them them getting a championship maybe if they stuck together. I agree. I know you agree with that too. I mean, a lot of cool insight though, man. Hearing about those Celtic teams, you must have been way stoked about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are my favorite Celtic teams to watch, you know. I mean, I grew up idolizing those guys and um, I was also a big fan of him because of what he brought to those teams. And he's kind of one of those guys that you look at the stat box, you know, it doesn't wow you, but when you watch him on the floor, he makes a difference. The Larry Bird shit talking was great. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> Too slow. Larry Bird shit talking stories never get old, but how cool is it that he actually listened to our podcast? Like he said, he listened to our Scott Pollard episode. I mean, that's awesome. He wants to go back and check out a couple more. I mean, it's just – it's blowing my mind. He he had a lot of great stories. He's He was definitely a glue guy, and I think that was cool that, you know, for our younger listeners playing ball, man, if you're not the 
35 point a game Michael Jordan guy you still have a place on your team and you always got to remember that and remember the things that you do that other people don't do will keep you around longer than you think you know what I mean and and, and a lot of people forget that you know it was like uh you know in other interviews we've had with a lot of these great players they always talk about you know uh teams and chemistry and you got to have this guy. You got to have that guy. You got to have this guy. And if you don't have those guys, you know, what do you really have? You know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and he went through it all. You really think about it. You go through those 84, 86 Celtic teams, championship teams. Then you go to Orlando and Charlotte that are basically expansion teams. You know what I mean? I mean, Charlotte wasn't – I think he did say he played with Charlotte in the expansion year too, which was interesting because we didn't know that. I thought he played year two but he actually played in the back end of Charlotte. So he did play in that expansion season. Um, you go play for two expansion teams, which is crazy, you know, and then I believe he finished his, did he finish his career? Not in Utah. No. Right. Uh, in, in Indiana, I believe, I believe he finished it at the Pacers and you know, what else is kind of funny was he played in college with Danny Ainge. Then he goes to the Celtics with Ainge goes to the Kings with Danny Ainge. He just couldn't get, get away from Danny Ainge. <laughs> so it's a good thing they were friends. <laughs> and, and you know how annoying Danny Ainge could be from the stories that you hear. <laughs> He's probably like, good Lord. And the funny thing, too, is they probably look like, you know, like they're so polar opposite, dude. Greg Kite's like, what, 6'11"? Danny Ainge is, what, 6'3"? Six, 6'4", you know I mean? 6'5". Yeah, I mean, they, they how- are, but – but I love Danny Ainge because he's a taller guard. Those BYU teams, they were long uh, with uh, Devin Durant. Yes, Devin Durant, not Kevin. But uh, <laughs> they had De- Devin Durant, who's like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, Greg Kite. And, uh, I mean, Ainge is a taller guard. So those BYU teams, they were long. And, I mean, those great college team. Say what you want to say about, uh, about Ainge. Scrappy-ass player. I always respect the scrappy players, man. You know, I mean, it seemed like he played for a zillion NBA teams and he was always the same guy in every one of those teams. You ever notice that? Yeah. Yeah. And he's just a smart player too. And it shows with his ability to be a GM and uh, be able to recognize talent, you know? Absolutely. Um, I loved hearing the Scott Scott Skiles Shaq story too. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, (laughs) that he's talking about Shazam and (laughs) This is so yeah, good. Well, it's funny because it's Kazam. <laughs> Shazam's, Shazam's from Austin Powers. You know what, dude? Two things Shaq should never do is rap and be in movies. <laughs> Except hey. Blue Chip. I love the Blue Chip shout out. That was amazing. Hey, come on. The Shaq and Damian Lillard rap battles, that was the highlight of maybe my year, honestly. I love I, you know what I love Shaq and I love I love how he gave us a personal side of Shaq too, which I think yeah. People don't realize how good of a dude that guy is, man. And that story about giving the the girl behind the counter a hundred bucks at Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, great story. Greg Kite's a good dude, man. And 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 he, you know, family first and and a lot of other things that I thought was really cool and respectful. And and what a great amount of detail and stories he gave us, you know. And it's because you guys, we're getting these guys. You know, we bring you guys the content. You bring us the likes and you bring us the reviews. We've got a couple more reviews this week. Thank you very much on that. And and all that does is give us more cred and gets us better guests. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are are, are sharing and liking our pages on, on social media, which you can do too. And 
all it does is just make the show better, which we really appreciate. We're always grateful. I know we talk about it every week and we keep it simple, man. We don't want to badger you with a bunch of crap. We just want to say thanks because we love basketball. And we love being able to get these interviews and we always learn something. And I know you guys do too, because there's, there's stories you hear that you don't hear, you know, other than listening to this podcast. I mean, there's been plenty of times guys have been like, this is the first time I've told this story. And you're yeah. just like, wow, this is really cool to hear. So we thank you guys for that. Um, we got a draft preview and a draft review coming up because the NBA draft's coming up soon. I know we're, we're plugging that because it's important to plug that. And uh, we got some guests in the pipeline that I'm really excited about and and some maybes and some guests I think are going to blow your mind, man. We're definitely hitting that next level of guests coming up. So, you know, showing the love of the reviews and the likes and subscribing, man, it comes right to wherever you, you uh, digest your podcast. Please, uh, if you can, listen to us Apple because we get to chart on Apple and we've charted nine countries and that helps us out, get some cred too. So enough of that crap. Thank you so much for doing that though, guys. We really appreciate you. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Just a big thanks to Greg Kite, man. Just really enjoyed him. And if you haven't listened to our last couple episodes with William Gates from Hoop Dreams and Greg Buckner, those are both two really great episodes. I definitely suggest you go listen to those. Absolutely, man. The Hoop Dreams episode with William Gates was amazing. I mean, what a lot of great stories he told. I mean, there's really, I'll be honest with you, my friends, there hasn't been a bad one. Everyone's yeah. been great. And everyone's oh, been yeah. so great with their time which we say so all offers they all offer something different you know absolutely and if you're a basketball fan obviously you're listening to this podcast right now like go back and check out some of the old episodes we have i mean you can you can definitely hear how green we were in the beginning <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> how nervous we were with our first interview or two but then uh yeah or your interview <laughs> you know what you realize though man is these guys are just guys like us dude you know yeah. they just have the uh, amazing ability to, to play at the highest level, but they're just guys like us, man. And I think it's, it's cool when they open up and tell us stories like this, because they know we do our homework. We love the basketball era that we get a lot of these guests from and whatnot. So do us all a favor, cross your fingers and uh, say a couple of prayers. Cause we got, we got some guys that I'm really stoked that we might be able to get on the show. And, and I think you guys would absolutely love it. So I know I'm saying this, I'm going to say it again. I'll say it in another podcast. We'd love to get some WNBA girls on here. We'd love to you know, bring that perspective. I don't feel like girls get enough credit or airtime or anything like that. And, and there's a lot of great girl ballers, man. So if any of you listeners know any girls that would love to be on the show, man, we'd love to have them on and get their perspective and take of, of playing professional basketball. Because whether you like it or not, WNBA is professional. And, and a lot of people need to show some more respect to that for sure. You know, so anything you want to add Zach before we get out of here? No, I'm echo what you said. Definitely want a couple WNBA players on. I definitely want to get that perspective, especially the business side of that. I think that would be very interesting to see how business is handled the WNBA. Oh, absolutely. Dude. The stories we could, we could tell man would be amazing. So um, for Zach, I'm Eric. Not my house is out of your house. Be safe. Have a great weekend. Show some love.